And would you join me now in a word of prayer? Let's bow our heads together. The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool under your feet. And we praise you, Lord Jesus, this morning that you are the Lord, you are the sovereign Messiah, that because you were crucified, buried, and raised, you have now ascended to the Father's right hand, and that is where you are, reigning in glory until you come to bring your kingdom in its fullness. And so, Lord, as your people, we worship you this morning. We gather to, at the foot, not only of the cross, but at the foot of the throne, to proclaim that you are the Lord that You are the King of kings and the Ancient of days. Thank You for that song we sang earlier that listed so many of Your great titles. And Lord, we praise You because although You are the awesome King, although You're the One who made everything, You loved us so much that You took on human flesh. And while we were yet sinners, You died for us. And so, Lord Jesus, we've never heard of a King like You. We've never heard of any ruler like You who was so great and yet went so low and became so... Uh, a base that He might even give His life for criminals and sinners and rebels like us. And so, Lord Jesus, we are Your people. We are Your people because of what You did for us, not because of what we did for ourselves. Lord, we thank You that in the high court of heaven, the verdict has come down and we have been declared innocent because Jesus was condemned and called guilty for us. And so, Lord, thank You for this church. We pray, Lord, for... Your Spirit to be poured out in this place today, especially as we come to Your Word in a few moments here. We pray that You would speak to our hearts. God, we pray for Your Spirit to be at work on the south shore of Boston. We ask, Lord, for churches around us to be strengthened, churches in our, our conservative Baptist fellowship. We pray for North River Community Church and Calvary Chapel in Rockland and First Baptist Church in Weymouth in our immediate neighborhood. Lord, we just pray that You would bless those churches. And I pray that, Lord, all the churches in this area would keep coming back to the Scriptures, both for their message and for their method. That we, O oh Lord, would be biblical churches because we know, Jesus, that You're the King and the way You reign over Your church is through Your Word. And so, Lord, we pray that we would submit to Your authority and we would know the blessing of, of, of obedience as, as a church. Lord, we pray for this congregation. Thank You for Vacation Bible School this week. All these great songs we're singing today just reminding us of thinking of this room filled with little kids singing these songs and learning about You. And God, we pray that You would uh, let the seeds that were sown this week fall upon good soil, that it might bear fruit in children's lives. Lord, we want to pray for our missionaries. Thank You for the Davises, Ken and Lucy, who will be here this afternoon. Lord, bless their ministry in Brazil. Lord, be with the members of our church who are going through various health struggles. Lord, I, I want to pray uh, for Your healing touch to be received by Kathy Corcoran and Cindy Norton, for Orville and Karen. Lord, be with little Molly McGilvery as she struggles to be able to breathe on her own again, Lord. Just strengthen her little body and be with her parents as they go through this grueling ordeal. Lord, be with Chung Lee and Mei Ling as they depart this week to go to California. And It's difficult to imagine this church without them, Lord. But we know that they will be with us because they are one in Christ with us. And so, Lord, bless them as they make this transition. And Lord, be with our brother, Seth Rogers. Pastor Seth, is, he's on his sabbatical preaching at First Baptist Church in Middleborough. Lord, we just continue to pray that you would bless his ministry, that you would bring renewal and revival and reformation and fresh life to that church as he opens the Word of God there. And now, Lord, as we open up your Word, we pray that you do the same for us, that you'd speak to our hearts. Lord, we 
The last thing we want to do is just go to church and go through the rituals. Lord, we want to meet with the living God and hear His voice and experience the risen Christ. And so, Jesus, speak to us now through Your Word, we pray. Amen. Well, I'd invite any children here, kindergarten to second grade, to be dismissed to Children's Church, if they'd like, through the door over here by the piano. And I'd invite the rest of you to open up your Bibles to our text today, which is Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23. If you're using a pew Bible, you can find that on page 1046. If you're unfamiliar with the location of Luke, Luke chapter 23. And today we come in our study through Luke to really the climax of the story, Jesus' work on the cross. And let me read our text. Actually, I'm going to go back just a little bit further from our text and start at verse 32. I'll start reading Luke chapter 23, verse 32. And there it says, two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, there they crucified him, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the Chosen One. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are the King of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, This is the King of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you were under the same sentence? We are being punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth. Today, you will be with me in paradise. The religious landscape of our American society has undergone a radical transformation in the last 40 years. You know, if you go back in time to 1950, uh, I wasn't alive then, but I've read that uh, we had three... Three main sort of religious choices in America. There was Catholic, there was Protestant, and there was Judaism. You know, there was chocolate, vanilla, strawberry. That was it. It was very basic. It was very simple. But starting in the 1960s in America, and I think especially with the uh, Immigration Reform Act in 1965, the way immigration was done in America changed dramatically. And literally millions of people from non-Western cultures came into our our country, and they brought with them their foods and their traditions and their way of life. But they also brought with them other religions beyond the typical chocolate, vanilla, and strawberry. Uh, in fact, I'd be curious to know how many of you here uh, wor- uh, maybe work with or go to school with or live next to somebody who is either uh, Muslim, 
Hindu, Buddhist, Sikh, Baha'i, maybe just a general New Age just I mean, maybe curious, show of hands, how many people have those experiences? That's pretty significant. Now, if I had asked that same show of hands in 1950 with a similar sized group of people, I wonder how many hands had gone up. You know, it's, it's really changed. And in many ways, I think, religiously, our culture is a lot more like it was in the Roman Empire in New Testament times because in the, in the day of Jesus, he wasn't just in one religion. I mean, there were you know, scores of different gods and deities and cults and religious views. It was very much a pluralistic kind of society. There were lots of different flavors of ice cream, so to speak. Now, what that has done to our thinking about spiritual things is really interesting because what it's done is, is, is we have to somehow deal with all of these people that we're now living with who have such radically different views of reality and truth and God and spirituality, however you want to call it. And I think what it's done is it's, it's forced many Americans or, or many Americans have chosen to move into a mindset that's really relativistic. The way we've dealt with all of these different religions is that we've kind of said, okay, it's all okay. They're all good, and really it's whatever works for you. If that works for you, that's fine, and that religion works for you, that's fine. And it, it's really up to the individual person, and it's all good, and we kind of affirm it all as valid and fine and acceptable. Uh, and so it's conventional wisdom today for people to say things like, uh, all religions are essentially the same. You've probably heard those kinds of phrases. Or people say things like, uh, we're all worshiping the same God, we just use different names. Or all religions essentially teach you the same thing. They teach you how to be nice and how to be good and how to be kind, and that's really the point. Now, of course, if you've studied world religions, you know what a stretch that is to say those kinds of things. But that is where people are at today. That's the way people think. Which is probably why when you ask the average American what they are religiously, they'll say, I'm not really religious, I'm spiritual. And, and spiritual sounds, it's just more open. It's like, I'm open to all kinds of different spiritual input. And, and so religion now is, it's more like, have you ever been to Cold Stone ice cream? I love Cold Stone ice cream. But you go to Cold Stone ice cream and they, and what do you do? You, you come to the, the thing and you, okay, I want, I want some, uh, you know, strawberry cheesecake flavor and I want some, you know, vanilla and I want you to put M&M's in it. M&M's, yeah, hey, it's my thing. Okay, M&M's go in. And then they chop it and they sing their little song and, and then they give you this thing that's your own concoction, and it's all good. It's whatever you want it to be. Um, now, the, the flip side of this kind of spiritual and religious uh, climate in our culture, the flip side is that if you stand up in our culture and claim to have belief in any kind of religious or spiritual authority in an absolute sense, and you say something like, no, no, this is actually the true way, People will hear that as if you had just told them you believed the world was flat. That's the way they'll hear it. They're like, what, what century are you living in? Join the modern world. Uh, so this is problematic for us, don't you see? Because what do you do then with Jesus? Because as we've been studying Jesus here in the Gospel of Luke for the past <clears throat> two years, um, you know, we've seen that... <laughs> That, that Jesus is not only portrayed as the King, the Savior, the Messiah, but that's how he portrays himself, both in his actions and in his words. And that's what keeps getting him into trouble with the leaders, is that he doesn't come along as just another rabbi with another opinion that you can debate, but he comes along with such authority. 
<clears throat> so how do we deal with that in a culture like ours? And my guess is people are going to generally respond to that idea the same way they responded to it back then, which is with a lot of derision and rejection. And so here we come to the story of the crucifixion, and here's Jesus. He's on the cross, and he's being ridiculed. And what are they ridiculing him about? Why are they mocking him? Was it his hairstyle? Was it his taste in music? Why don't they like him? It's because he claimed to be the king and the savior. And that's what they're reacting against, that spiritual authority that he claimed in a unique way. And so look at the text again. Verse 35 says, The people stood watching and the rulers even sneered at him. And just a reminder, the crucifixion of Jesus was a very public event. Crucifixion in general was a very public event. The Romans uh, did this in a very public way. If, if the Romans were in charge of the South Shore of Boston and they were crucifying people today, they would probably crucify them at Queen Anne's Corner. Or they would go to the major, they would go to exit 14 right on the interchange and you would see them driving on and off the highway. Because the whole point of crucifixion was to make a very public statement. To say, don't mess with Rome or <clears throat> that's what happens. And so th this crucifixion of Jesus was a very public event. Everybody is there. Uh, we're told by historians that during the Passover at this time, the population of Jerusalem would swell by several hundred thousand people as pilgrims from all over the Mediterranean world came to Jerusalem. So there's thousands of people watching this whole thing go down as Jesus is crucified. And there on the cross, they begin to mock him. And notice that there's three groups who ridicule him and specifically ridicule his claims to be the Lord and to be the Messiah. The first group are the religious leaders. The, in this case, it would be the, the Jewish uh, priesthood and the, the Pharisees and teachers of the law. And it says in verse 35, the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. So they're mocking him for claiming to be the Christ. Uh, and, of course, the word Christ is just the Greek word for Messiah in Hebrew. So, in other words, he's claiming to be that person that the Jews had been waiting for based on the Old Testament promises. The Jews in Jesus' day were waiting for this king to come from God who would come into this broken world and establish God's kingdom and establish righteousness and restore God's people to their place of blessing and honor and overcome all of God's enemies. They were looking for this, this kingdom of God to come, and that's who the Messiah was going to be. The problem is, Jesus claimed to be that guy. <laughs> and the religious leaders were like, ooh, I don't think so. Because if you're the king, then that means we're no longer in charge. And so Jesus' claim to be Messiah was threatening their, uh, their religious authority and monopoly that they had over the nation. And so they didn't like that. And in fact, really, that's what was the beef with the religious leaders anyway. If you go back to chapter 22 when Jesus was on trial before the Jews, what was it they were accusing him of? Do you remember? They weren't accusing him of being a murderer or a thief. The big issue was, are you the Messiah? And he said, well, even if I tell you, you're not going to believe me. And they said again, are you the Son of God? And finally he said, it is as you say, I am the Son of God. And that was what they wanted. Aha! We have him. That's his great crime to claim to be that spiritual authority, that king and Messiah. And so they mock him and they say, hey, if you're the Christ, then save yourself. 
And that's really the issue. In fact, as I think about, uh, for instance, taking world religions, Christianity and Judaism, in some ways they're very similar. I, I have an uh, Orthodox uh, Jewish acquaintance, and we talk about religious matters sometimes, and it's great conversations. And what I find is we, we actually agree about a lot. Uh, we both agree that the Hebrew Scriptures are the Word of God. And we look, if he calls, I call it uh, inspired. He talks about the divinity of the, the Torah. But we're kind of talking about the same thing. Uh, we both believe there was really a Noah and there was really an Abraham and that the story we read really happened. We both ascribe to the, mor- the moral system that you see exemplified in the Ten Commandments. We have a lot of similarities. And yet there's this profound difference that is so drastically separate that makes them as if they're not the same religion whatsoever. And that is the issue of Jesus. Is he the Messiah or not? And how you answer that simple question just sends you in completely different directions. And that is where we inhabit different thought worlds so that it completely reshapes even how we understand those Old Testament scriptures. And so there's the issue. Who is Jesus? And they reject this idea that he is the Christ, the Savior, and they mock him. And what's the mockery? The mockery is, if you've saved others, save yourself. If you really are the Christ, you will prove it by coming off the cross. You see that? The soldiers are the second group that mock him, and they have a similar thing. If you're the the king of the Jews, come down. Look at verse 36. The soldiers also came up and mocked him, They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. Now, in the Roman world, they had a king. His name was Caesar. The Romans inhabited a very complex world, as we said before, of many religions and many authorities. Uh, And their ultimate authority over them was Caesar. In fact, Caesar was viewed as a god. And to be patriotic to Rome, you had to worship Caesar as part of the whole commitment to it. So they, they believed Caesar was king. And so when Jesus comes along and he's called the king of the Jews, they're going to balk at that. And they're going to reject that as well. They're going to say, oh, you're the king of the Jews? Well, this is what happens to the king of the Jews. And they crucify him. Look how they mock him. They bring him some wine vinegar. This was like the cheap, yucky wine that only the poorest people could, that the poor people could afford. And so it's like, oh... Oh, your, ma- your majesty, may I bring you a drink? You know, and they give him this nasty, yucky stuff, this wine vinegar. And again, the claim, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Come down from the cross. And there's even this little title above his head. Uh, it's called the, the titulus. It was a, a title or a sign. It was typically put on the cross or around the victim's neck or whatever. And it told what the crime was. So again, as you're walking down the road and you're like, ooh, what'd that guy do? Murder, insurrection, okay, I'm not going to do that because that's what happens. Uh, What's Jesus' crime? That he's the king. (laughs) That's his crime. The king of the Jews. And so they reject him. The powers of the world reject him and mock him. And I bet today that's probably how the powers of this world would respond to Christ. You know, I was imagining, what if you could get a hearing at NATO and they had a big meeting of NATO and they let you come in and speak or, or somebody, one of us. Or, or maybe you went to the OPEC nations were meeting and you went to a meeting of OPEC or you went to a G8 summit and they let you in to speak or even the UN 
And, and you stood up before this group and you said, no, we have some very big decisions to make today. And so probably what we need to do is we need to bow our heads and, and ask for Jesus' guidance because we know that he's the Lord over all the nations and that he's the king over all the nations of the world. So we really need to submit to him and get his wisdom. <laughs> you know, what would happen? They'd be like, security, we've got a live one here. You know, guys would swarm you with suits and guns and they'd take you out. And you'd be like, whoa, that, that was a real crackpot in here today. That was a, one of those weird, narrow-minded, religious bigots. And good thing we got him out of here. Uh, that's how the world responds. See, I think the world is okay with Jesus. They're just okay with a certain version of Jesus. And the version that everyone's okay with is Jesus as the nice guy who taught some good things and he started a religion that teaches people to be nice and as long as we stay in kind of the realm of nice, then you know, we're all okay with Jesus. But the idea of Jesus as Lord and King, it would not be accepted. And I think the same reaction would adhere today as it did back then if it were to come out uh, to that fine of a point. But it's not only the religious leaders who reject him and say, if you're the Christ, come down off the cross, save yourself. Not only the Romans who say that, he even gets it from the other criminal on the cross. Verse 39, one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Here it is again. Save yourself. Prove your claims by saving yourself. Now, how do you know you've hit the very bottom of the social barrel? Answer, when you're being ridiculed by a guy on a cross. That's how you know you are at the the nadir, the, the absolute bottom of the social food chain. Is when even the guy on the cross next to you is jumping in and saying, Oh, yeah, let's, uh, why don't you save us? He's even mocking Jesus. Even this bad boy who has broken society's laws and lived against God, he is even appalled at the idea that Jesus would be the King or the Savior, the Messiah. So what do we do with Jesus? How are we to handle this? How do we respond to Christ, given these claims that he has made? Because we have to respond in some way. Jesus is along the main road. He's not often some backwater. He's where we have to face him. We have to go by him. We have to walk by him. He's right there. What are you going to do as, as he's in our face with these kinds of claims? And it comes down to kind of a binary choice, doesn't it? When someone makes claims this big, they're either really, really true or really, really false. He either is all of that or he isn't all of that. And even if we say, ah, I don't think about this, and we try to go by the cross like this, like, oh, just, I'm going to go shopping, I need to go to the beach today, I'm going to go fishing, I don't know, why do I have to worry about these things? I don't have to make any choice. You've already made a choice. Because you're rejecting this idea that he is the king and the savior and the Messiah. And so somehow we have to decide what to do with this Jesus and these claims that he's making. Do we join with humanity in ultimately rejecting his claims of being the Savior and the Lord over our lives? Or do we take a different approach? And this is the other choice. And it's exemplified by the last character in the story. And it's really surprising. You know, it's this kind of a twist. This is like a movie with a twist at the end of it. Oh, I didn't see that coming. Who's the guy who affirms Jesus? It's the other criminal. The hero, in terms of faith in this story, well, the hero is Jesus, but the guy who's the model of how to respond to Jesus 
is the other bad guy. It's, it's totally shocking. Look at verse 40. The other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Notice three things. I want to point out three things about what this other criminal has to say. And the first thing I want to point out is that this other criminal has taken a very countercultural stance. By speaking up for Jesus at that moment, he's really opened himself up to scorn and ridicule. Like, oh, you, you're with him? <laughs> you know, now the derision can come at him and people can look at him like, why would you stand up for this Jesus when everyone else is mocking him? And so I think that we have to understand up front that if you're going to come to Christ and follow him, you need to count the cost first. You need to understand that following Christ is going to put you into, in some ways, a very oppositional position with your family, people at work, your neighbors, because they're going to look at you and go, huh? You're one of those flat world people. You think Jesus is the way? Like, what, what millennium are you living in? And you're going you're gonna to be resisted. And you have to understand that. So if you're the kind of person who really likes everyone to like them and really likes to fit in with everyone around you, and, and so when you're with, with, with your, the green group, you kind of like a chameleon, whoo, you turn green. And when you're with the blue group, you, you turn blue. And when you're with a plaid group, you somehow turn plaid. If you're that kind of person, following Jesus is going to be extremely difficult. Because we're just called to imitate Christ. And Christ was ridiculed for his claims. And if we affirm those claims, don't be surprised if you experience some level of hostility and rejection. So that's the first thing to understand. We have to count the cost. This criminal, he, he's sort of a model of how to respond to Jesus, right? So we see him counting the cost. He takes this bold step of faith. Secondly, the second thing we see in this criminal is that he's repentant for his sin. He's repentant. Look at verse 40. He says, don't you fear God? Implying that he does fear God. He said, since you are under the same sentence, here we go, we are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. And so this second criminal is owning his guilt. And when I say guilt, I don't mean subjective feelings of feeling guilty. I mean objective guilt. He's saying that I, am, I stand guilty in the court of God's judgment, in the court of the land. I have broken God's law. And so this is, this is really uh, a, a critical part of coming to Christ. In fact, you can't come to the Christ without repentance. Because it makes sense, doesn't it? Isn't it logical? That if Jesus is the king, and I'm making a transition where I say, okay, I'm going to enter into the kingdom of God... I am, by virtue of that saying, before I wasn't in the kingdom of God. I'm now going to obey Jesus, but before I wasn't. So we have to own up to that and say, I haven't been living as God as my king. I've been living as, well, as myself as the king. And now I'm, I'm repenting of that. I'm turning away from that. Or if we say, here's another way of putting it. If I'm saying that I'm accepting Jesus as my Savior, that implies that he's saving me from something. What is he saving me from? Well, he's saving me from the judgment of God against my sins. 
Which is why the thief starts in verse 40. He says, don't you fear God? And this is one of my concerns in my own life and in the church is that we, we celebrate God and we enjoy God and we you know, worship God and we praise God. But do we fear God? Do we fear God? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, the Proverbs tell us over and over. And so part of worshiping God is to fear His holiness and His sovereignty. So to become a Christian, you have to repent. There's just no other way around it. We have to, at some point in your life, come to a point where you say, it is not well with me. I have lived in rebellion against God. I don't just need you know, recovery and help. I need forgiveness of my sins because I stand condemned and under the threat of judgment. So to become a Christian, you have to enter into a very moral worldview where there are very much rights and wrongs and truths and laws that apply. It's a different kind of world than most of us inhabit mentally today. It's a very moral worldview. Or, let me put it this way. Try it again. Um, if you're here and you're not a Christian... Maybe you're not a Christian. And you're checking it out, but you haven't made that commitment. You're not sure if you believe Jesus really is the Son of God. Let me ask you this. Haven't you ever looked at your own life and just known that something really is amiss? Something is not right. And you don't know exactly what it is. And so you say, well, maybe maybe I need a vacation. I need to really chill out because I think I'm stressed out. I think that's why these things are happening to me and I'm behaving this way and re- responding to people this way. And, or you say, well, maybe I, I need a new relationship. This relationship I'm in is bad. It's probably this other person. And so if I had a new relationship, that would help. Or maybe I need a, a wardrobe because, I mean, I'm really a summer, but this is kind of spring and, you know, I'm just my feng shui is all off or something. And, and so it's, you know, maybe I need to rearrange my furniture to get rid of the sharp angles and get the smooth angles or whatever. It, we, we have all these different things we try. And we, we, we say, if, if I adjust these things in my life, perhaps that will help me emotionally and, and whatever. And so we adjust things and we buy the new wardrobe and we go on the vacation and whatever. And it helps some for a little or whatever, but you're still the same person. And, and let me just challenge you and say, what if the problem isn't all this stuff? What if the problem is, is yourself? What if the problem is a moral uh, warpedness in ourselves that no, even if you put me in the perfect world, I would still mess it up? <laughs> because it's me. And even if I had the perfect spouse and all the money in the world and the fabulous wardrobe... What if I still would mess it up? Because the problem is my moral proclivity to be selfish and to focus on me. That's what the Bible calls sin. is that living apart from God's laws and in rebellion against Him. And could it be that the real problem is a moral problem, not an emotional problem that, that we have? And that it's the moral problem that causes the emotional problems, the financial problems, the relational problems. But ultimately it's between us and God. In that case... We, at the base of it, we need a Savior. We need a Savior. Not just a makeover of some form. And so we have to repent. We have to turn from sin and turn to God. And then notice the third thing the thief does is he has faith. And so these two go together. You have to understand this. Repentance and faith. It's one coin with two sides. It's like heads and tails. We have to have faith. If you just have repentance without faith, that's called despair 
and hopelessness and beating yourself up. <laughs> if you just have faith in God without repentance, that's just like, oh, you're okay and I'm okay and it's all good and God loves us all. And woo-hoo. You have to have, you haven't really come to know Jesus and the holiness of God. And so there's repentance and faith. You have to have the, the judgment of the holiness of God and also the love of God together. And we respond with repentance and faith. Notice the faith of the thief. Verse 42, he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now that's faith. Because <laughs> what exactly is it about Jesus in this moment that exudes king? Nothing. He's dying. He's been pinned to a cross by Roman power. If, anyone, if anything says king here, it says Rome is king. But there's Jesus and He's dying. He's expiring. He's physically, the life is, is just flowing out of Him. He's literally about to die. And this criminal looks at him and says, I believe that you're the king and therefore you're going to have a kingdom. That's faith. That's amazing faith. That's saving faith. Faith means that we believe the promises of God's Word more than we believe our immediate circumstances. That's faith. And if God's Word says the Messiah is going to bring the kingdom, and if that's the Messiah then that means even though he's dying on a cross right now, I believe he's going to have his kingdom because God's word is more important than immediate circumstances. God's word is more powerful than that. And so that's faith, is to hold on to the promises of God's word even when they seem to be directly contradicted by the circumstances of our lives. That's real faith. And so this man puts his faith in Jesus and he believes. And what happens to this thief? Jesus says, I tell you the truth Today, you will be with me in paradise. He's saved. So he, he goes from ruined criminal, and in one moment, he now becomes beloved citizen of the kingdom of God. How did he get from here to there? What did he do? See, he didn't, he didn't get baptized. He didn't make a new start and try to be a better person. He didn't... He didn't say five Our Fathers and ten Hail Marys. He didn't become a member of a Baptist church. Uh, I mean, certainly that would save a person, if anything. No, he, he, uh, he, didn't, he didn't try to make it a new start and reform his life. He didn't meditate. He didn't recycle. He didn't do anything that's supposedly good and, and wonderful. All he did was he, in faith, turned his head to Jesus and repented and put his faith in Jesus. Which is, which is kind of like saying he did nothing. I mean, what is faith? Faith is just coming with empty hands and saying, I have nothing and I need you to, to save me, God, because I can't save myself. And in the moment he repented and believed, in that very moment he was acquitted and transferred from the status of condemned criminal to beloved child of God. And so we're, salvation is through faith alone in Christ alone. That is how we come to know God. Through faith alone in Christ alone. That's simple faith. And I know that just appalls us. We're like, no, come on, come on. I gotta do something. No. You just have to believe. Aren't Christians supposed to be good? Yeah, but that's an outgrowth of being rescued by God. It's not what brings us to God. That's a, a, an overflowing of the new life that's in us. It's important to get that sequence right in, in our minds. And so here's Jesus saving this guy. 
And the authorities had said, if you're the Christ, prove it by coming down off the cross. And Jesus says, no, no, no. I'm going to prove I'm the Christ by staying on the cross. That's how He proved it. Because He wasn't there to save Himself. He was there to save me. And that other dirtbag like I'm a dirtbag. He came to save sinful, ruined people like me. That's why He stayed on the cross. And so I think we have in Jesus the most amazing and compelling uh, apology for the Christian faith. Jesus dying for us is so unique. When you compare the crucifixion of Jesus for sinners to other world religions, that's what makes Christianity sparkle like a, like a gem that has somehow come down from the heavens. It's otherworldly. There's nothing like this. Because when you look at all the other world religions for whatever values and insights they have, what you find when you get down to the nub of the question is, how does a human being come to be accepted by God or go to paradise or achieve nirvana or find inner peace or however it's constructed? How does a person get that? The answer is always, you do this, you do that, you do this, you do that. So in Islam, it's the five pillars of Islam. Well, you have to make the confession, there is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his prophet. You have to pray to Mecca five times a day and you have to make the Hajj once in your life and you know do this. Judaism, you must keep the Torah. It's about studying the rabbis and the Talmud and the Mishnah if you're going to be an observant Jew and learning how to get it all right. And Hinduism or, or other forms of polytheism or animism, it, it's about finding the right sacrifice to appease the right God. And if you get the right rituals right, then the, the gods or the spirits or whatever give you the blessings. Um, and even Christianity. I think most people misunderstand Christianity. And they read Christianity through that same kind of lens. And they say, oh, okay, being a Christian, being saved, okay, go to church, read my Bible, serve on a committee, um, you know, don't get drunk, and I'm good. And it's, a, again, do this, do that, do this, do that, do this, do that. But the message of the Gospel is God coming down and saying, I've done it. That God has done it. And to find God, it's not about rituals and sacraments and things like that. To, to find God, you simply have to be a sinner who looks over. And God is right next to us on a cross. <laughs> There's no other faith message like that. I just find it so compelling and so amazing to think of. You know, it's so amazing, people, that it's like nobody could have thought of that. that. That's coming from somewhere else. When we think of things, it's always about us. And to think of it coming from Him, it, it just speaks to me of, of an otherworldliness that human beings don't have and that we don't come up with. So what do we do with all this? How do we as followers of Jesus Christ, what do we do in a world that rejects the idea of Christ's lordship and will ridicule us for believing in him? How do we handle this? What do we do tomorrow morning? I'm going to tell you what you do. Here's what you need to do. Get up tomorrow. You're going to get ready for work. So, you know, take your shower and get your clothes on and go down and have some breakfast and, you know, have your cup of coffee, read a newspaper, whatever you do. And then when you get ready to go out the door in the morning, go over to the closet or the wall or wherever you keep it and get 
your cross and put it on your shoulders and carry your cross. Go into the world tomorrow with that crucified mindset of saying, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me because I've been crucified with Christ. And when we go into the world tomorrow, we're not going in to advance ourselves or make more money or prove to people that we're the greatest or advance our careers. Our primary focus in living tomorrow is to pour out our lives for others. To love our families. To love the people at work. To give of ourselves and to inconvenience ourselves for the needs of others. In other words, to model what Christ did for us on the cross. And as we do that, we're going to just look like total weirdos. (laughs) But I think in an attractive way. And we're going to tell people that it's because we believe Jesus is the Lord and He's the Savior. And, and some people are going to look at us and go, oh, you are one of those closed-minded religious bigots who is totally stuck in your own way. And whatever. You know that's coming. It's going to come. But there's going to be some other people that we'll meet. And they're going to, to say, whoa, this sounds different. And they're going to be at a place where God has brought them where their hearts are broken. And they've tried all the other things and they know that it doesn't work and that it doesn't save. And they're going to want to know what it is that you're talking about. And so one by one by one, God is going to bring you to those people who He's calling to Himself. And as we humbly serve and deny ourselves the way Jesus did and carry our cross and reach out one by one by one in this way, in this way, God's kingdom comes.